0: Central. Hello there, and welcome to Tech Radio, the number one Irish tech podcast, bringing you the latest news in tech from around Ireland and across the world every single Friday evening on RTE Radio. Or, of course, you can get a first on Friday mornings or anytime you like with your favorite podcasting app from Apple, Spotify, Google, Amazon, or wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Dusty Rhodes. Welcome to episode 878, where I'm ably joined, as always, by our editor in chief, Niall Kits Niall, we are kind of at the I've been describing it to everybody going, yeah, summer slump loads of time. Just call me whenever. Mm, yeah. <laughs> but I'm thinking, looking at uh, Eamon Ryan in the news this week, that September is going to be really interesting. Because Eamon has been on, or sorry, I should be respectful, the minister has said minister. that um, uh, that everybody should be back at work in our offices by September. I don't think it's going to happen.
1: Okay, I th- I think that's a very interesting proposition because uh, oh, okay, we will all have our vaccine passports by then. Mm-hmm. Fingers crossed, God willing. Uh, I have mine, you have yours mm-hmm. at this stage. Uh, very easily kept in your you know digital wallet of choice, uh, Dropbox uh, in my case. Um, however, it does beg the question why given the year and a half of remote working where everyone has been really happy and, and continued to work as if nothing has happened, just, you know, from the home office or your kitchen table or whatever. Why, why all the interest in getting people back in the office? I mean, granted, it makes sense. You've got your COVID passport. Yep, you can go anywhere. That's fine. Welcome back to the office environment. Um, Google and Facebook, uh, if I recall correctly, have been quite reticent about letting people work from home forever. Twitter said, yeah, okay, work from home forever. We're, we're fine with that. A lot of companies that we're seeing are advertising and using remote work as a differentiator. It's like, yeah, you don't have to come to the office, you know, work work from home so long as your productivity is good. But we are seeing some companies going, okay, let's get you back in the office. You've You've had your time off. So it makes you wonder, okay, people have taken to working from home. That's fine. However, is the quality of the work they're doing from home comparable to that which they would be doing in the office and if it isn't then you have a very strong case for getting people back
0: into the office this is why i think september is going to be interesting because uh i think i think it's going to be a hybrid thing and that's that's the Mm. way it appears to be going um because you can't manage people if they're not in your office you just, if you can't see them on a, on a daily or a regular basis, you can't manage them properly. I think about the quality is a really interesting question. I hadn't thought about that. Uh, but certainly with the quantity, everybody I know who's working from home is working longer.
1: Yes, uh, and I agree. I've fallen into that trap myself. Hmm. Just because you're you're sitting somewhere comfortable, familiar, everything is within arm's reach, uh, it is so mm. much easier to end up putting in an extra half hour, hour without noticing. Exactly.
0: Anyway, listen, this is a tech show. So I think kind of with the technology that we have had pre-COVID, it was all there before. So Microsoft Teams and Zoom and yada, yada, yada mm. and Slack and all, all, they've all come into their own. And I think it's going to make remote working absolutely a large part of our working life. But gathering together uh, in offices, I think, will equally be a large part of our working life from September. And you can see that, as you say, with the tech giants, because Google and uh, I think it was uh, Facebook today said, yes, they want people back in the offices from October, but you must be vaccinated. I think that's really interesting. If you don't have the vaccination cert, don't show up. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It, it makes sense. All right. And, and, you know, the return of the water cooler moment, I, I think, is something people are, companies are really, mm. really keen to get back on board. If you're a sole trader, it doesn't, doesn't matter a, a lick of difference. You're, you're on the road, you're doing meetings. That's, that's how you do things. It's when you're in that collaborative environment where you've got a little bit of banter between people, maybe not even in the same team, maybe cross teams, cross departments, all these little things spark off ideas. Yeah. And when you're remote working, we you don't have that.
0: Anyway, we can't be. Anyway, we just wanted to do a nod to uh, Google and Facebook that they're getting back into the office from October. Facebook is actually what we want to talk about today. Um, tell me what you want about Facebook, and then I'll tell you what I think. Okay, right. Facebook has decided that this this
1: world is no longer good enough for it. This this world, this universe, is no longer good enough, and they're taking a, a term from Neil Stevenson's uh, novel Snow Crash. Uh, it's a cyberpunk novel. Uh, I read it. I didn't really like it. But, you know, I can see why a lot of people would. The world building in it is is absolutely stellar. But they've taken the term the metaverse. And what they want this to be is sort of the next level of uh, what they're calling the embodied internet so it's the the example of the completely immersive space you put on your vr headset or your ar goggles or whatever and you're inter- you're interacting with the internet in a much more tangible way you know you don't need a mouse anymore you will physically just point uh to click all this sort mm. of thing uh, and it means that, you know, there's tremendous scope for creating virtual working spaces. Uh, again, replicating those those water cooler moments, if, if you so desire, uh, or removing sort of perhaps that element of, of Zoom fatigue. Um, but you have to wonder, Facebook's big problem isn't immersing people in virtual spaces. It's sorting out their moderation issue. Um, so basically what, what they're doing is they've, they've had two things go really wrong over the past year. They've had a crisis of moderation where you've had all this anti-vax uh, misinformation spreading. Uh, and of course, you know, previous problems with elections um, on, on a certain side of the Atlantic. Uh, so, and they've also had a problem with their physical Oculus headsets. They, there was a, a, an issue with the face guards on them, sort of that the, the phone material, it was actually giving people rashes and irritating people's skin so they had to do a sort of a cost-benefit analysis and yeah there, there was a recall done uh, and things uh, some headsets have been delisted for the moment while, while they figure out how to um, replace that that particular part um, so yeah they, they've had two big problems one with one with oculus one with content moderation and they've decided to come out and go Ooh, look at this over here if only we're left to our own devices this level of immersive computing, could be for you. I don't know, Dusty. Uh, uh, Legitimate uh, or distraction?
0: Uh, Before you even get to distraction, I would say, what problem is it fixing? And we started off by talking about going back to the office because people like that one-on-one human real interaction. All right. Mm. Uh, We're all fed up with Zoom. All right? right. Which is, I mean, this kind of metaverse is like putting goggles on it's like zoom on speed do we really want to go there so no I don't think it's fixing a problem Uh, the only problem I think it's fixing is that it's making headlines about Facebook that is not talking about all the problems that they have which makes it the most mistrusted brand on planet earth uh Okay, I, I, they, we did carry
1: a story on on trusted brands a a, a while ago. We did,
0: yeah, yeah, and, fe- and Facebook did miserably in
1: it. Yeah, it did, it did pretty poorly. Yeah. Um, yeah, I can't remember the the exact placement, but but
0: that's that. Yeah, that's 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 what I think, and I've heard it a couple of times. Uh, in that, it's a distraction. There's a lot of all their kind of you know, a lot of mared <laughs> to quote yeah. the French um, uh, that they're dealing with. This is a wonderful distraction. That's all I think it is.
1: I think so. It's, it's an opportunity to go, hey, look, mm. you know, we're, we're working on these genuinely innovative ideas. If only you pesky humans weren't getting in the way, uh, we'd be flying. We'd be, yeah. we'd be doing all this great stuff because Facebook's <laughs> primary problem was connecting people and making it easy to share bits of your life. Yeah. And progressively, they've been reining in the ease at which you can do that. I mean, they did the, the news feed, the infinite scroll. They, they basically created doom scrolling. Mm. Um, I think there, there is a, a documentary on, on Facebook at the moment. Um, can't remember the name of it at the moment, but they, they, they got a lot of really good developers on there, including the guy who invented Infinite Scroll. And he was like, I'm sorry, this was such
2: bad idea.
0: I hold my hand up. I apologise yeah. for what I did with Facebook and the oh, hours that you... Think. If we knew, if I knew, I wouldn't have done it. If I knew. Oh well, there we go. There we go. Listen, it is the middle of the summer and it is kind of quiet, so uh, there's not too much happening in the news. But um, uh, yes, hopefully when we get back to September... Ta-da! It'll all be back to normal again and we'll be able to go to conferences and meet each other for coffees and, and, and people will actually be in town and, and all kinds of things. We, we, Hope Springs. We, Hope yes Springs. Yes we, we, we wait patiently for that day. This is Tech Central, your weekly tech podcast from Ireland's techcentral.ie. Tech Central. We see stories about new applications for artificial intelligence every day. But while it works as an aid for decision making, it can often fall flat when left to deal with human problems like helping companies find the best staff or how to accurately recognise faces in a crowd. So how do we figure out which questions to ask to get the best results And why should some subjects be off-limits for the level of technology that we currently have? Ray Eitel-Porter is Global Responsible AI Lead with Accenture and he took some time out to talk Niall Kitson through the problems of adopting an ethical approach to artificial intelligence. Right, When looking at AI,
1: we're understanding that it's being driven by the likes of Facebook, by the likes of Google, by the likes of Amazon, basically companies that can afford to, uh, to invest in these sort of expensive, I, I guess, almost moonshot um, uh, projects. So one has to wonder, is ethics baked into uh, this kind of research or, you know, is it a matter of ethics will never be considered by these companies until something goes wrong, because ultimately they are profit-driven
2: entities? Well, I think uh, there are a couple of points sort of embedded in your question there. Um, Firstly, I would say ethics isn't necessarily embedded in AI. So I think it's something that that we have to be very purposeful about. Um, But I don't believe that um, ethics and profitability are incompatible um, and I think that the genuine focus on um, ESG that we're seeing from many senior business leaders now, including, for example, um, Accenture's own CEO, um, I think that really supports that that view. And I don't think these are, you know, hollow, hollow statements um, but I also think that there is a, uh, a business imperative, if you like, because businesses recognize that AI can bring them huge benefits. But that will only be possible if customers, consumers and colleagues um, accept and adopt AI. And in order to do that, um, people will want to trust it. And that's where I think the the um, imperative for ethics comes in to, to build that level of trust that allows people the confidence to, uh, to accept and adopt AI.
1: I think that issue of trust is absolutely essential and really differentiates uh, AI from other such hot-button topics like sustainability, where it's very easy to ascertain the business value of uh, a strong sustainable policy. Um, having a strong policy in AI, it seems to be much more nebulous because the technology seems to be evolving all the time and it, it doesn't quite occupy the same space in the zeitgeist, it's it's still this very sort of, it's off in the back end, it's working away on something. And if something goes wrong, we can blame this thing called the algorithm uh, and I guess sort of dissociate ourselves from the human impact of AI. So but would you agree that, you know, people are, that they're not necessarily aware of the impact of AI and therefore maybe more likely to just put responsibility to one side, uh, saying AI is a sort of imperfect technology, and therefore we we can expect things to go wrong with it, as opposed to sustainability, where we see the the benefits every day, or we're we're emotionally invested in how things turn out.
2: Um, Well, I would agree that um, the general level of understanding of AI is uh, not as you know, far advanced as sustainability, for example. Um, although uh, I suppose even with sustainability, you know, there are, um, even with climate change, there's disagreement about different experts uh, about aspects of it because it is, can be a very technical Field, um, so I do think there is a need to raise overall awareness and understanding um, about AI and what it can do and and how it does it. And I think that there's also a need to introduce a greater um, standardization, professionalization, if you like, um, into the industry. If I make a comparison, for example, with medicine. You know, one of the reasons that we trust um, doctors is because there is a very clearly accepted, uh, you know, set of qualifications. If you go and get treated by a doctor, you know that he or she will be qualified to a certain standard that's been, um, you know, assessed by a professional body, etc. Because we very often won't really understand the details behind medical treatment. And I think that, you know, something like that would be a good, uh, a good thing in the data science profession, where people could look at qualifications and, and understand that they're standardized, they're regulated by a professional body and, and so forth.
1: That issue of standardisation and regulation, it it kind of flies in the face of ethics, which traditionally, you know, of course, is a a branch of philosophy, you know, something that uh, a field that is very comfortable with the ambiguous and answers very often relating to, well, it depends. So how do you go about introducing uh, a standardization or you know a, a mental set of tools for people to deal with ethical questions when they might not come from a background that would encourage that kind of thinking?
2: I think that's definitely um, something that, that we need to be aware of in terms of how we um, engage with and, and use AI. So I think that uh, one thing that's absolutely essential is having Diverse and interdisciplinary teams. Um, when you're uh, when you're conceiving and designing and building um, AI systems, it's critical to bring different perspectives um, to bear. Um, and to your point of uh, ambiguity, uh, that's another challenge because in a number of situations. What we see is that there will be trade-offs that have to be made between, uh, for example, accuracy and bias. Um, there are situations where, as you remove bias, um, a negative or, or you know undesirable bias, um, from an algorithm its accuracy will become uh, less, uh, you know, it'll become less accurate. Um, And there's no hard and fast rule that says you have to be 83%, you know, um, non-biased, and that that's the standard. And I don't think that uh, we will see regulators setting um, hard and fast rules like that either. Um, I think there may be guidelines, but I think it will be up to Uh, companies um, and then the companies should have policies and appropriate escalation mechanisms to make those trade-off decisions. They shouldn't be left to a frontline data scientist to decide in each and uh, every case.
1: So do you think we will see sort of corporate structures evolve to see things like in-house ethicists, sort of people with a, a background in, in philosophy, find, finally, I guess, finding a, a, a grounding for their uh, expertise within industry?
2: I think we could well see that, yes. Um, and um, uh, And again, I would say, you know, I think those decisions need to be made by a a mix of people a group of people rather than let's say one ethicist uh, because there'll be lots of different um characteristics that um that need to be uh, brought to play and if i g- go back to my example of bias you know there are situations where um bias can be a good thing and where we may want it um for example you know we worked with um, an employment agency that was trying to understand how best to help people get back into jobs and um, in that particular instance uh, you do want to look at factors such as age um, ethnicity and so forth um, because they may be um determining factors of groups of people who need more help. The, you know, the object of the agency was to provide more help to people who needed more help to, to get back into work. Um, typically, we would not allow those kinds of factors to be part of any kind of algorithmic decision-making because we would say that's, that's um, you know, discrimination. Uh, but in this case, that was exactly the objective. So we have to be, we have to be fluid um, and respond to each situation in the decisions that we take.
1: I think that's a really interesting example uh, from the world of HR because uh, if that question was to be read backwards, it it would be an absolute disaster for discrimination. Because we know one multinational that, you know, they they went, okay, who's our perfect employee? What do they look like? And they ended up basing their employment strategy on a very narrow section of, uh, of, of individual that came to apply for jobs and it was a you know incredible amount of bias uh, involved basically because they didn't know the correct question to ask of the information they were receiving
2: yes that's absolutely uh, the danger that one needs to be aware of and um, you know i think that the, the Probably the biggest challenge that we have in AI is that to develop an AI algorithm, um, we have to have data to train that algorithm. It needs to, to get its information from somewhere. That is generally historic information. And unfortunately... You know, human society has been full of bias, um, often unconscious bias, but, but full of bias in the past. So many of the data sets that we may um, look at as training data sets will have inherent, um, you know, discrepancies in them towards different subsections of the, of the population. And that's why um, being very proactive about designing with AI ethics in mind, Um, is really critical because you need to take very specific steps to um, consider not only how you sample the data, but then the data set itself – and to evaluate it for um, whether it is representative of uh, not just the past, but representative of the type of, um, of audience that you would wish to have. So in your example, you, know, you, need to, you need to analyze the data set and you need to adjust it to make sure um, that it is not biased against particular gender, against particular ethnicity, etc.,
1: And, of course, that issue of bias when you're looking at fields of emerging technology where, you know, it's often said that the most profitable jobs within the the next 18 months don't exist yet. Um, It becomes incumbent on employers to look for the type of person that would be good for a job as opposed to somebody with specific skills.
2: Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. And I do um, I do fundamentally believe that we have um, a positive opportunity here with the use of AI because, you know, uh, I think many companies now um, provide unconscious bias training um, for their members of staff. But I think we would all recognize that, um, you know, we are, as individuals, we're all a product of our of our upbringing, our background, you know, location, a whole range of different things. And it is actually quite difficult to make sure that human beings are completely unbiased and objective in their decision making. Whereas in principle, it is possible to make algorithms completely objective and, and unbiased. It's not easy, um, but that is, I think, the opportunity that we have and it's incumbent on anyone in this field to strive for that and to really um, look to use AI to achieve that, that better goal.
1: So, in looking at the application of AI, where should it, it actually, you know, where should ethics exist in the AI um, chain of product development? Should it be at that, you know, level of should this be a project we we should pursue? Do we have the tools? Do we have the data to accurately interrogate this project? Or should it occur at sort of the minimum viable product level, where you go, uh, okay, look, we've we've tried this and. It hasn't worked, or do you? Should it be at sort of that the end of the chain, really, when it starts reaching the you the end user or the consumer, and then you take a step back and go, okay, in the wild, this this just hasn't
2: worked. We we have to put a a line under it. I, I think it has to be all of the above. So I think it's absolutely essential that you design with AI ethics in mind, and that means asking those questions, you know, at the point of conception. Um, just because we can do something with AI, do we want to do it? Do we think it's appropriate? Does it <clears throat> fit with the values of the organization that, that uh, you know, is, is considering developing it? Um, but then those questions um, and technical evaluations have to continue all the way through the or what we would call model development <clears throat> life cycle. So as you select your data, as you process your data, as you build the model, as you're testing the model, um, and then as you start to deploy it. And very importantly, and and sometimes overlooked, is the criticality of continuing to monitor um, the algorithm when it's actually live. Because the environment in which the algorithm is used may change, and that may change the way that it behaves um and might introduce you know some some bias for example that, that wasn't there originally um or it may be used in in a context that was never intended which may cause it to uh, provide um you know, you know undesirable results so I think it's critical to have this perspective all the way through the through the life cycle
1: I suppose this speaks to the need for that awareness of how AI works, that because something has failed in its first iteration, it doesn't mean that the algorithm can't be refined and, and made more accurate. How do you think, you know, do, do you think there is a massive challenge in sort of getting that sort of knowledge into uh, uh, into the zeitgeist, especially when you have high-profile failures like facial recognition, uh, where minorities have been incorrectly identified. You know these are so these can be some fairly high-profile failures. And um, so, how do you educate the public to understand that? Look, occasionally these things are going to happen. You know, AI is not. You know, it's an aid to decision making as opposed to a replacement for human decision making. <sighs>
2: Well, I think there's several important points there. Um, One is that I would say we should be really careful to not let these kinds of systems loose in the wild, if you like, until they have been exhaustively um, checked. And um, I think it's also important to apply a sort of risk triage approach to that. So... You know if let's say my algorithm is going to make a decision as to whether I recommend a green shirt to somebody or a red shirt to somebody it's not particularly high risk right so I can probably you know let that one loose <clears throat> relatively early or relatively easily and and if it <clears throat> is not so accurate um, it, it's not so critical if it's facial recognition and it's being used in a situation which really impacts you know individuals and and um, Perhaps their rights or their access to to um, services or whatever. Um, we should be incredibly careful before um, we actually use you know those kinds of algorithms in a commercial uh, setting because I we don't want to have um, headlines in in the press about AI going wrong because to the point we were talking about earlier, trust is absolutely critical if people are going to adopt it. And the more unfortunate headlines that one sees, um, the less people are going to be willing to, to trust it. So I think the industry has to be really, really careful um, about doing this extensive Testing and trialing and catching those, um, you know, mistakes um, before before they happen in in reality. So, in looking at who gets to sort of
1: decide ultimately. On whether projects should go ahead, be maintained, uh, or or killed, what sort of um, organisational structure would you prefer to see? Would you, would you see, you know, the ethicist, the business case, the technical case, uh, all represented as sort of a, a, a committee?
2: Totally, yes. Um, you know what we um, what we do ourselves and what we recommend to the clients that we work with is that this has to be a cross-enterprise endeavor. Um, I don't think you can have, you know, one department or one group which is solely responsible for this um, because it, um, AI ethics cuts across, you know, all aspects of the business. So you need the at the right tone and the right values to be set from the top of the organization, from the most senior leadership. Um, and, um, you know, that, that should... Align with the general core values of um, uh, of, uh, of the organisation. Um, it was interesting. I was listening to a podcast actually this morning with. Um, the uh, I think it was the European CEO of Visa who was talking about the fact that they are adopting ethical principles um, about the way that they they use data as a way to guide, you know, that organization. And I thought that was, you know, exactly the right way to go. And then those principles need to cascade down through the organization Um business managers product owners non-technical people have to understand the role that they need to play Um, and then of course the technical um, workforce as well because some of these considerations like bias and like explainability etc are not particularly easy and not every data scientist will have the um, specific expertise to work in those areas so um it may well be important to invest in training, you know, certain individuals to work on those particular aspects um, of uh, of model development.
0: And that was Niall Kitson chatting with Ray Eitel-Porter, global responsible AI lead with Accenture. That's it for our show for this week. Do remember, you can get the lowdown on all things tech in Ireland with hourly updates, daily newsletters and more at our website techcentral.ie or, of course, listen to us each week online or Fridays with RTE Radio and Extra. Until next time, from myself, Dusty Rhodes, and from Niall Kitson, thanks so much for listening as always and have a great weekend. Get Tech Radio. Subscribe for free with iTunes or download on demand at techcentral.ie Tech Radio is produced by digitalaudioproductions.com Tech Central.